0: Hey
1: Chris name is also Chris I'm not sure if you can hear it in the background but um here in my backyard sitting by a a big fire just trying to relax and listen to your podcast I appreciate what you do keep it up man hey Chris this is Ben from Brookfield Illinois I'm just walking through the snow in the woods near my home, along Salt Creek. And I just chased a raccoon up a tree. He climbed way up this tall, skinny tree. I don't know what his plan is. He's just staring at me. He's just way up on the twigs. He's just swaying in the breeze. If he just jumped down and attacked me, I would run like hell. I'm not one to fight this little guy, but he's very scared of me. I'm just intrigued. Well, thanks for listening. Hey, Chris. uh, My name's Max. I live in Bristol, UK. Um, I'm a maths teacher uh, a skydiver and a parent, and I, I love all three. Um, I love your podcast as well; it's fantastic. I've been listening to it for about six months. Um, a friend of mine who I'd lost touch with, where we for a few years, we got kind of got back in touch, and he was sending me your podcast. He'd got it through Joe Rogan, and and um, he was like, "You should listen to this guy. You should listen to this guy." And, and and it took me a few goes to to get into it, but but now I have, and we both like it. Really, it's kind of stimulated a real change in our relationship in terms of kind of stuff we talk about we love the insights that you make on your roma episodes and 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 it kind of gives us a much more meaningful conversation much more meaningful relationship it's at a distance we, we he's he's not in the uk anymore um and so i just want to say how much i appreciate that i think you, you the impact of what you do is is yeah it's, it's on individuals but it's also on on conversations between individuals be be friends lovers whatever so thank you um I had an idea I've just listened to Roma 61 and and uh loved your kind of insights on ruthlessness but but the inapplicability of ruthlessness to your own situation when uh, I I made me snort with laughter when you said um ah yeah but I couldn't tell myself any of this if I was in the middle of a relationship with a woman and I was like yeah there's a real truth to that which made me think about an idea I've had for a while but I'm not brave enough to implement and I wondered if I could get your thoughts on it Um, I feel like what you should do when you get to the point in your life where you feel like you have maybe six or ten friends that you really trust is, uh, you know, whatever, create some sort of uh, WhatsApp group or, or, or group on some sort of technology where they are your decision makers when you have a decision that you know you are too close to, right? You know, we know sometimes when we're in that relationship that we're not sure we should continue. We know we're too close to that relationship. We know we can't make good decisions, so what you do is you say to your friends, right, here's it, here's the issue, here's my. Here's all the facts I can gather, here's all the stuff I can do. You make the decision and you put it to a vote in that group of your friends and, and you, you, you live by that vote. I, I'm not brave enough to do it, but I think it'd be a much better way to live and I'd be really interested uh, on your thoughts on it.
2: Thank you for those messages, gentlemen. The guy sitting by the fire doing absolutely nothing. See, you don't have to be tricking the fucking Annapurna Sanctuary to send in a a little intro you can just be hanging out doing not much of anything that's fine no worries whatsoever and uh who was the other Ben and the raccoon glad you didn't get attacked Ben and Max from Bristol well okay interesting idea the problem is to quote um Joseph Conrad, The Heart of Darkness. We live as we dream, alone. And the problem is you can tell your friends all the facts, but you can't transmit the feeling. And I think where we tend to go wrong is in the things where we're motivated by feelings. I mean, if it's just a rational decision... Then you know, even if we're very close to it, most of us most of us know what to do um and know the reality. but it's like <clears throat> I was talking with someone the other day about these sports where or not even sports just activities where your millions of years of biological evolution tell you one thing and your rational brain tells you something else. So that could be rock climbing and you're roped in and you know rationally that if you slip and fall or just let go of the ro- of the rock you're going to fall about an inch and then the rope will catch you and you'll be fine. Or scuba diving. Now I've I've had both these experiences. Uh, where you're, you're sort of you know, bobbing along on the, on the surface and waves are crashing into your mask and you've got your regulator and you're, you're breathing, but your body thinks you're drowning. So you, you're hyperventilating, your heart's going a million miles a minute, you're, you've got all sorts of hormones released into your bloodstream, you're stressed out because you think your body believes you're dying. Whereas your rational mind is like, I've got oxygen tanks. I've got a regulator in my mouth. I've got a mask over my face. I'm not dying, but your body thinks you are. And I think that's this kind of situation that we're in in these relationships and these situations where we're like, ah, uh, I, I know what I should do, but I can't do it. It's because the feeling is so overpowering and your friends won't really be able to help you with that. So your friends might say, yeah, dude, you should definitely move on and you'll be determined to move on, but then you won't because the feeling stops you. That's the problem. Anyway, um, this episode is with Dr. Turner Osler, who is a fascinating man, really interesting dude. We we talked about all sorts of things. Uh, we discussed the fact, for example, that he went to Princeton in 1968. When, you know, he was like 18 in 68, like perfect timing to experience that particular watershed moment in American history. Really interesting. Um, and uh, while at Princeton, he studied anthropology and, and considered becoming an anthropologist. And then he ended up going into medicine and became both a surgeon and a medical researcher. Um, his, uh, research and surgery, I guess, I mean, he, he sort of went all over the place in terms of his research. He talked about, um, how he did some research on, on gunshot wounds, um, he did a lot of surgery and, and gunshots, and trauma surgery. Um, and he's very interested in the spine, which then led him to invent an office chair, which I'm sitting on right now. Um, and uh, so, full disclosure, what happened was we move into this place and I'm setting up a new office. And uh, I looked online for office chairs. <clears throat> and I wanted something that was wasn't just gonna be your typical office chair that I would like sink into and not get out for hours on end, so I was looking for more sort of ergonomic office chairs and I came across i don't remember where or how but I came across um Dr Osler's chair that he had invented and uh looked really interesting and i you know I played my I'm a big shot podcaster card, and I wrote to them. And uh, actually, I think Anya wrote to them and said, hey, you know, Dr. Ryan's setting up an office. If if you'd like to send a chair, uh, if he likes it, he'll talk about it on the podcast. Well, I like it. Um, So it's not really a sponsorship. Uh, He just, they gave us a couple of chairs and we like them very much. And I like him. He's a very sincere, decent deeply intelligent man. And I very much enjoyed this conversation with him. So um, I hope you enjoy the conversation. And if you do, I hope you'll look into the chairs if you're in need of an office chair. I'm sitting on it right now. You might hear some, some noise in the background because the whole idea of the chair is active sitting. So it's sort of, um, it's like a stool, but it's on a, on a, firm cushion that moves in 360 degrees so you kind of roll around on it you're you're sitting your weight is supported but you're also moving um so that you know does strengthens your core and helps you your balance and all this and that but basically what it does is it stops you from just being totally inert uh which is a huge advantage so i hope you enjoy this conversation to come. Uh, things, just a little housekeeping to mention. Those of you who don't uh, subscribe to my Substack, if you want to keep up with news and, um, you know, various things that I'm watching, you know, videos I'm I'm recommending or films I've seen or books I've read or stuff like that, that I forget to mention on the podcast, or I just don't want to clutter it up with too much stuff. That's the place to find it. I do a monthly brain dump where I just like, here's a bunch of shit I've noticed in the last month that I really enjoyed. Um, Also upcoming events and uh, various things that have happened. One of them is that my friend and benefactor and teacher and beautiful, beautiful person, Ginger Norwood died a couple of weeks ago. Um, Ginger was on the podcast. Uh, you may remember she is uh, was one of the first women to work for NASA. She designed the um, Landsat satellite system that um, took readings of the surface of the Earth from space, the first technology to do that, which is a pretty fucking significant thing when you look at it from a, you know, from a global evolutionary perspective, you know here, yeah, several—I don't know how many—hundreds of millions of years ago, the first signs of Earth of life appeared in the oceans, and you know, single-celled organisms, and then they split, and blah blah blah, started crawling up on the beach, and then they turned into lizards, and then they turned into, you know, the first mammals after the, the asteroid strike and the dinosaurs died, and this and that. and then you've got technology and. For the first time, an animal looks back at the planet through technology. That's Ginger. That's what she did. Holy fuck. That's fucking crazy. Maybe I'm oversimplifying it. There were satellites, obviously, before Ginger, but she designed the satellite that measured the Earth. So this is the satellite that was used, for example, to notice that lakes were shrinking or that forests were being burned down or that desertification was happening. You know, you need this sort of constant monitoring and recording in order to make comparisons to say, oh my God, five years ago, this forest was much bigger than it is now. This desert was smaller. So that's Ginger. She was also my landlady. Landlady? Landlord? is it, Are women landlords? I don't know. Sorry if I've offended any female property owners out there. Um, But she rented me her guest house in Topanga for the years that I was living in Topanga for four or five years, um, which was awesome um, in so many ways. Uh, Incredibly kind and generous of her to, to let me live there. It was a house that she had built For her son, David, who had ALS, which is a neurodegenerative disease. And, um, you know, she didn't need the money. She didn't need money at all. She was fine. Um, But she had built this house for him to essentially die in. Um, And he lived there for six or seven years. I never met him. I met the family shortly after he had died. Um, but the house had sat empty since then. Um, and I think maybe four years had passed and I'm friends with, uh, Ginger's daughter and granddaughter and son-in-law. And so I sort of know the whole family and, um, and it was proposed to her, Hey, Chris needs a place to stay. And, you know, it was when my dad's health was failing and I needed a place to stay in, in LA and Ginger said, well, yeah, Chris can stay in, in David's place, no problem. And um. so Ginger and her daughter, uh, Nomi, uh, spent a weekend up in the house taking David's clothes out of the closet and putting his things into boxes and Uh, It was very emotional. It was the first time, I think, that either one of them had spent any time in the house since he died. So it wasn't just a case of, like, someone renting me a place. It was very much a feeling of, uh, we love you, and we know you're going through some shit, and yeah, we'll face this and and clear the space for you. So the whole experience was wonderful. And, you know, and when she said, yeah, you could stay here, I said, well, I don't don't know how much this is, what's a fair rent to pay. I don't know that I can even afford it, you know. And she said, oh, just pay me whatever you want. I, I don't care about the money. Pay me what you think is is fair and what you can afford. The only thing I ask is, you stop by every once in a while and have a scotch with me. And I was like, God damn, you're a cool lady. I don't even like scotch, but I'll learn. I'll fake it. (laughs) Anyway, uh, Ginger Norwood, check the archives and uh, listen to that episode again. She was a beautiful, beautiful person. Um, But, you know, she lived 96 years Oh, by the way, there are obituaries in the New York Times and the Washington Post. Um, so if you read either of those papers, just Google Ginger Norwood and you'll read her. I'll, I'll link to um, obituary as well in the episode notes. Um, but, uh, oh shit, now I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, she she lived 96 years. She... Spent, as far as I know, no time in the hospital. She was fine. Uh, She had a, I hope, had a little glass of scotch and went to bed and didn't wake up. 96. How can you do it better than that? She stuck the landing. Congratulations, Ginger, if they have podcasts wherever you are now. All right, I will stop talking. This is, well, I'll stop talking now and then you'll hear me talking yesterday. Uh, I'm going to play you out with a song that I think is appropriate on many levels uh, because it's written by a woman who reminds me of Ginger in some ways. Carsey Blanton. She's smart. She's funny. She's sexy. She's unapologetic. And uh, she's living life on her terms, and she writes songs about it sometimes. And this song is called Backbone, and it's about, I don't want a man who does what I tell him to do. I want a man who's got some fucking balls. Or in her case, she says backbone. And uh, so that's appropriate to talk to uh, Dr. Osler as well, who spends a lot of time thinking about backbones. All right. Thank you, everybody. I've got a lot more to say, but it's almost 20 minutes in, and I don't want to divert too much time from this conversation. I will be back shortly with Aroma. And very briefly, I just want to thank everybody who reached out to me after that last um, He Is Risen episode that I just posted a few days ago. I guess I sounded quite forlorn in that. And um I got a lot of love from all corners of the internet. And uh, I, I just, I'm so grateful um, to be part of this community and the kind of people who take time to, to reach out. So thank you so much for that and for being who you are. And uh, here's Carsey Blanton, Backbone. Yeah, I've been on a bit of a podcast hiatus recently. So this is uh this is the first podcast I've recorded in probably over a month. So I'm really happy to have you to have you here Turner. This is great. Um uh, I'll I'll talk about the chair and how we got in touch and and all that in the intro that that I'll record later. Um so we don't have to do that now, but I'm sitting on one of your chairs right now. You'll notice me sort of Rocking around, as are <sighs> Me you. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I uh, you know, I don't promote things on the podcast. That I've been doing this podcast yeah. for over a decade now, and there have been times when I did ads and, you know, tried to find ways to monetize it, and and I just sort of get disgusted with myself every time and and stop it. But occasionally, when I I find someone who's doing something that's really interesting and worthwhile i've got no no qualms about it if it's something i actually like and believe in whether it's a Yeah and i I'm, I'm 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 very uncomfortable pitching our chairs you know that's that's
3: what my 20 something crowd does i'm i'm more interested in the idea of active sitting and i i right. try and stay clear of chair pitching
2: well i i really appreciate one of the things i appreciate about the way you're going about this is um, the button chair. So you you do this chair based on your experience as a orthopedic surgeon. Is that correct?
3: I, I was a general surgeon. My I have actually I'm triple boarded in uh, general surgery, trauma surgery, and burn surgery, and critical care. I guess I, I at wow. one point I, I was quadruple boarded, um, and and this business of you know getting involved with sitting is just like the last thing on my on my list ever um but um you know i kind of aged out of staying up all night with gunshot wounds and Mm. um so i slid over into doing epidemiology because i have a degree in math and statistics biostat kind of uh, epidemiologic modeling and so i I started doing that and so i was sitting a lot and for the first time in my life my back hurt i thought what Mm. the so one thing led to another that got out of hand. And so pretty soon I'm making prototypes and, right. uh, and uh, you know, before you know it, you're in for a million dollars worth of, you know, prototyping madness. Right. And then, and then your son comes home from getting his degree in computational biology at Cornell. And he's just like horrified that I pissed away his entire inheritance on this vanity <laughs> project. <laughs> and, <laughs> and So, so he's, Very eager to put this on like a a business-like (laughs) footing.
4: So
3: so it's 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 a push-pull kind of thing.
2: Yeah, you think if your dad's a doctor, you're all set, right? I mean, come on. Uh, And
3: and not just his dad; his mom is a rheumatologist. Oh, uh, you know, he's he's like we kind of thought he'd go to medical school, and I think he kind of thought he would, but he after watching his parents, you know, for decades, he decided. The doctoring thing was a lot of damn work. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So you know, the business of you know trying to find some other uh, way forward, kind of, and entrepreneurship kind of tickles us scratches an itch that he has.
2: Well, let let me uh, get into or just finish the point I was starting to make there about the button chair because it reinforces the idea that you're doing this out of your your interest in active sitting and something beyond just you know trying to introduce a new product into the marketplace and make some money the button chair is uh, a set of of instructions digital instructions that you guys send out free to schools around the world um who can make their own chairs very similar to the ones that you sell on your website for free basically for some plywood and and if they have the right uh, tools they can Print it up for free. So it's kind of like right, you're and it's sharing been, the code. It, it's a very it's cool thing da- to do. It's been downloaded four thousand times, you know. Mm. And
3: um, and I just love the idea of, you know, you it's like stuffing a button share through the internet because it's just a digital file that pops up and pops out in Singapore or Taiwan or or Germany. And anybody with a CNC router can just like cut these, cut the pieces out like a cookie cutter. And then um you know the joints are designed so they just fit together. You don't need screws or glue or anything. It just it just like pops together. And um, you know, it was just kind of I wonder how this will go kind of thing. But uh, we had we had one guy whose wife, uh, well. A teacher in one of the schools in Essex, Vermont, close by, has a husband who has a wood shop with a CNC router, and she demanded that he make 100 button chairs. So he did. And uh, it worked out pretty well in this school here in uh, Vermont. And now we've got uh, high schoolers kind of researching button chairs in grade schools uh, in Virginia and um, North Carolina. So I love the idea that kids are doing Older kids, high school kids are doing research on younger kids using button chairs that is kind of the test dose of active sitting, which is, you know, basically free because that way you, you need a CNC router and some plywood. But other than that, it's free.
2: So for those of you watching this on video, you just saw the button chair. Um, what is the website where people can can go and look at this stuff? It's buttonchairs.org B-U-T-T-O-N.
3: C H A I R S, no space dot org.
2: And, and what's your main site for selling the commercial chairs?
3: Uh, and we have a, we, it's Q O R 360.com, like core, only all the C's were taken. So we had, we got the Q's, Q O R 360.com.
2: All right, cool, cool. I was watching your, uh, your TEDx video this morning, uh, for the second time. And uh, I'll link to that in the, in the episode description. So people can see that if they'd like. Um, But you said something that, that really resonated with me. It was just a line. It was, it was a, a transitional line. You said you were talking about office chairs and how they support your, your lumbars and your back and your neck and your this and your that and all the other stuff. And you said, but we aren't being supported. We're being confined and restrained. And I wanted to like stand up and applaud. I thought like that's, (laughs) Like, that's my whole message, too, right? About civilization, about industrial food, you know, uh, agriculture, about the medical system. Everything is saying we're making you safer the way we raise children, right? Like, oh, don't don't touch that. Don't step on that. Don't move over there. Don't... We're not making people safer. We're weakening Wait. them. Oh, your, your goddamn shoes,
3: right? Um, your feet are being, like boxed in, and you're and anesthetized by the pillowy insoles that let you feel nothing. You know, your foot's designed to interact with the whole planet, and it's anesthetized and compressed. And when, when, when they did this to Chinese women a couple of centuries ago, everyone was horrified by the foot binding just to make people, you know, stumble around. And, and we're right back with it, you know. Um, it's, it's astonishing what people have put up with. Um, all in the yeah. all being ta- all being assured that this is this is all for your benefit and comfort. You know, I think I think comfort's been way oversold. Well,
2: I I, I think I wrote about this in civilized to death, but <clears throat> I had an experience where I was visiting friends, and they said um, in the guest house they said, "Well, we just installed a new bed there. Be interested to, to hear what you think about it." It's this very expensive natural latex noodles from the Amazon, you know, and they told me about the sh- thread count and this and that. And, and these are really wonderful people. And I, I don't mean to be, uh, you know, uh, ridiculing them at all. It, it's just, they're just generous and kind. So they were like, Hey, we got this beautiful bed for the guest house. So I went to bed and I fell asleep and I woke up in the morning and we were having breakfast. And they said, what do you think of the new mattress? And I said, Uh, I honestly, I didn't even notice. I just fell asleep and woke up and I guess that's good. Right. I mean, (laughs) is that what you're supposed to do? And that got me thinking like, what is the difference between numbness and comfort? Right. What is that? It's the lack of sensation. We're confusing lack of, of input of, of awareness with comfort which is kind of a death wish, right? I mean, when you're dead, you don't feel anything. When you're alive, sort of by definition, you're dealing with input, sensory input, experiences, challenges, you know, you're engaged. And yet it seems like we're constantly reconfiguring our environment in order to eliminate these inputs. It's a very strange thing. No. And, and as you say, you know, being alive is a matter
3: of interacting with the world, feeling the world and whether what you feel is comfortable or uncomfortable, that's something that's really added on at the cerebral level. You know, your, your, your sensory system is just reporting information. Your brain decides if it likes it or not. Um, so it's a, it's a yeah. very, it's a very nuanced thing, but, Um, You can find, you know, expensive chairs on the web, five, six, seven grand that really look more like beds, you know, people are reclined and padded in every conceivable way so that they can feel nothing, which is, um, as you say, it, it feels like a death wish,
2: really, it's, it's, it's odd. You'll hear people say it's so comfortable, I felt like I was floating on a cloud like that's such a weird thing to say i'm floating i felt nothing that's but, but just...
3: we're but we're we're designed to live in gravity right. so uh, when a, when a when a newborn is born it doesn't have the normal lumbar lordosis and spinal curves these develop as a matter of existing in gravity and creeping crawling toddling and walking I'm quite certain, although the experiment hasn't been done, and I don't think any IRB would approve it, that if you raise a, an infant in zero gravity, you would wind up with um, a spine that wouldn't work when you got back to Earth. Right. Because yes. the spine develops in a gravitational field expecting a gravitational field. And when mm-hmm. you, you know, just get to the the zero-G floating slump, um, this is not a useful posture if you're existing in a world with gravity.
2: Expecting is a very interesting word to use there. And I think that is a, a window into so much of these issues, right? The body does expect things. Um, you know, there's a problem with uh, sleep apnea and um, crowding of the teeth and all sorts of dental and throat issues Because the jaw of children expects to chew hard foods, and because it doesn't encounter hard foods, because we feed babies mush, basically, (laughs) the jaw doesn't grow enough. And so we end up with uh, underdeveloped jaw bones, which crowd the teeth, which mean your wisdom teeth are impacted, which means your throat doesn't function properly, cascading problems with health because the body's not receiving what it expects. And it it breaks your, it breaks your heart as a parent to, you know, know
3: that you've done this to your child.
4: Yeah. And, and, and and
3: there are, and there, and there are other examples, you know, we, you know, half of the world wears spectacles now, uh, 100% of the current group. um, And it's going to be 75% within another 20 or 50 years. And, the medical profession was stymied by this for a long time because it makes no sense that you'd have a perfect organism and then it would just die in the wild because it couldn't see or yeah. couldn't see accurately enough. And, and now we think we understand that it's because we live indoors right. and we never exercise our eyes by looking at a horizon that's distant and we don't get, um and the sunlight is filtered uh, through glass. So the eye doesn't develop in a way that, you know, normally would give us a 2020 vision as all hunter gatherers have yeah so you know we're hobbled in so many ways
2: and and when you talk about being a parent i'm not a parent i i never had kids and one of the reasons i i never had kids is i i have always felt um opposed to the mainstream teaching on how to live and so i felt like how can i have kids who are, you know, going to school with everyone else and, you know, they think Santa Claus is real and I'm saying that's a bunch of bullshit and then that ruins <laughs> their lives and their friendships and I just didn't want to get into that whole mess, you know, um, but one of the things that comes up quite often is this whole thing about let your kid cry it out, put your kid alone and just let him cry and cry and cry until they give up and then everything's <laughs> going to be wonderful And looking at this from an anthropological perspective or or a primatological perspective, a primate infant left alone in the dark of night is an infant that's about to be dead. Right? That's very deep in our instinct. And, you know, any baby knows that. So, this idea that you put a kid alone in a dark room and just let him cry it out, like, I can't imagine the trauma. And I'm not blaming parents for this because that's what they're taught to do, but it's right. And it's trauma. It's trauma for the child,
3: but it's also trauma for the parent because every parent knows in some deep way that this is a terrible thing to be doing to a child, especially your child. And, you know, there are a lot of parents who, you know, quietly begin co-sleeping, just put the baby in bed with them and don't talk about it because, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, 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 forbidden I I have an MD. My wife has an MD. So we're very happy just throwing the kid in bed with us for years. And that, and you know, that bullshit about, oh, you're going to roll over and crush your child. No, you aren't. That's, that that that's, that's just, that's just deep silliness. You know where your child is every moment because they're touching your skin, you know? So, yeah. Although I
2: mean, what if someone's an alcoholic and they're so drunk, they don't know where they are. You're right. I mean, so, so, it, that's the problem. It's like, we make up these rules to the lowest common denominator, and the rest of us are trying to follow the rules, but it doesn't make sense, you know, for most people. Right. So well, for, for most people, you know,
3: co-sleeping is is the obvious thing to do. And when I say most people, I mean all of humans
2: through time. There's a lot of humans yeah, out there. Exactly. <laughs> most people from an anthropological perspective. So you studied... En- did you study anthropology formally, or is it just a lifelong interest? I, I know oh, there's I, a lot I, going on there.
3: So when I uh, when I was uh, an undergraduate at Princeton, I was a university scholar, so you could take any course you wanted. You just had to be able to like you know, write a thesis before you left. So mm. you know, I I, uh, I I took a lot of anthropology because it was just I just thought it would be such a great life, you know, mm. uh, being an anthropologist, but. I, I don't know. Neurobiology kind of got a hold of me, and and then I wound up in medical school. So you you, you, you just don't. You, it's hard to plan.
2: Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So tell me about Princeton. You, what years are we talking about? Seventies? <laughs> no, yeah, sixties. Uh, oh. I I, uh,
3: I was a class of seventy three. Um, When I arrived at Princeton, I, um, you know, I'd been there for a couple of weeks, uh, uh, 1741 Hall, and I asked the guy in the room next to me, Don, where are the girls? And he just burst out laughing because Princeton was a boys' school. My mother didn't tell me. <laughs> no kidding. So, wow. so so it was a, but it was an interesting anthropologic experience because they introduced women while I was there. But you know, it was a odd circumstance with, you know, thousands of men and a few hundred women. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was just it was it was it was a, it was an odd time.
2: So you started your freshman year was sixty nine then? Uh uh sixty a lot's going on you're you're a teenager uh vietnam's happening The lunar program is underway the first earth day and that was a tumultuous my dad my dad my
3: dad is a naval officer we're we're marching on washington dc about the war in vietnam i come with a bunch i come home with a bunch of my long-haired hippie friends to our family home in arlington virginia and my parents politely put them up, and then we go, you know, uh, kind of uh, rebel against everything that my dad's career had stood for. You know, they, they, these were, these were um, not tense, but, um, you know, uh, difficult times. You know, my, my dad couldn't imagine that, you know, the things that happened in Vietnam were happening. And it, it wasn't until my brother came back from Vietnam and said, oh, no, it's not that bad it's worse. And, uh, you know, my poor dad, he, he had a lot of adjusting to do. So these, these were heady times. And as you say, the space program and, and, uh, you know, all, it was, it was an exciting time to be alive.
2: Were you aware and, and people around you, were you aware of how special, uh, that historical moment was that you were living through? Um,
3: I knew that landing on the moon was, um, uh, was unusual. Um, you know, I, I, I was, um, I was on an anthrop, I was on an archeology dig in Winchester, England. Uh, and um, I, I really wanted to be present for that moment, but I was living in a dorm someplace. So I just, I just found the tourist section of London and walked along till I got to an open window and could listen to somebody else's television. When we landed on the moon, it was, It was really, it was was, was a transformative moment for me.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that uh, what you said about your father, I kind of had the same experience with my father. He was, um, he worked in public relations and uh, he kind of believed in the transformative uh, potential of a well-run corporation. You know, and and by the time I was growing up, uh, it seemed pretty clear to me that corporations were, by their very nature, anti-human. The, the profit motive trumps everything else. And, you know, for a while, that was sort of the, the, this, the struggle, father-son struggle that we had. And eventually, like your father, he saw enough and heard from enough people and came to the conclusion that I was right, that it actually was irredeemably corrupt as as an entity. And that was really sad. It was like to see someone who's sort of you know, motivation, uh, was pure and see them come to the conclusion that they'd been wrong. Or, or they'd
3: been wronged. You know, they had been, they had been
2: misled. Yeah. Yeah. Good way to put it. But it, it was heartbreaking. It's, it's like, that's a, that's an argument I wish I hadn't won, you know? Um, and I wonder for you as a physician, if there may have been some similarities in your professional trajectory, you did a lot of surgery over the years. I'm sure you're familiar with John Sarno's work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think he felt the same that, that it's like, I did a lot of surgery that actually what these people needed was psychotherapy or they needed um, uh, movement education or they needed better furniture, you know, or they needed their marriage needed work. It wasn't about the spine. This anxiety manifested in the spine, but it wasn't actually a structural issue.
3: Right. Or, or uh, I, you know, my uh, training was as a general surgeon initially. So we were doing uh, these operations for women with breast cancer where we would do not just mastectomies, but we do extended mastectomies where we take the the pectoralis major and the pectoralis minor. Even we would take ribs out, you know, trying to get deep to the cancer to be sure we got it at all. And then this was our training. This was what skilled surgeons were teaching us to do. And in fact, you know, not too many decades later, we learned that breast cancer is a systemic disease from the moment it's detected. Mm. All of this um, heroic um, surgery we were doing wasn't heroic at all. Um, it was um, mutilated. And you know, it, you feel terrible to have participated in um, in something like that, but we didn't know any better. Um, so you know, you, you don't get a pass, but you you do, you do. Uh, get the obligation to understand clearly what you're doing before you dive in, especially if it's an operation that you can't undo. Um, so yeah, no, it's a, you know, medicine is a, it's a, it keeps a hard school because, um, well, as as they said, half laughingly when I was in medical school, half of what we're teaching you is wrong. We just don't know which half. And, um, it's, uh,
2: yeah. yeah. What no, do you I... think about and... the, the personality of a surgeon? Do, does this... <laughs> I, I've spent a lot of time around doctors and, and, you know, each specialty sort of has its cliche. It's almost like, uh, um, you know, horoscopes, you know, there's the surgeon personality, there's the psychiatrist personality. Is that, well, I, I, I... I, I love this little one-liner. You
3: can always tell a surgeon. You can't tell him much, but you can always tell a surgeon. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Or, There's the kind of and, the, and, and go
2: ahead. Go ahead.
3: And 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 my wife is an internist, so we have this surgeon-internist uh, kind of tension tensioned uh going on all the time the most famous internist of the uh, 20th century was um sir william osler no relation to me um and uh he he has a whole book of aphorisms and my favorite of all of them goes like this he says there is scarcely any condition so grave that it cannot be made worse by surgery yeah
4: (laughs) yeah
2: well in in surgery you know combined with a medical system that encourages intervention over prevention
4: or,
3: or, or profit driven for crying out loud. Um, you know, it's a, um, it's a prescription for catastrophe.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was married for a long time to, um, a psychiatrist, um, but we lived in Europe. So it's a very different set of, um, you know, motivations and incentives there um and it's just interesting to see you know how different like no one becomes a doctor in Europe to get rich you know Th- that's not a motivation at all no and, and
3: and it's new in the united states you know up until the 1950s doctors were paid like plumbers mm. you know it wasn't until you know in the 60s and 70s that doctors started to have fancier cars and then you know then it really got out of hand
2: and is that Sort of congruent with the rise of specialization.
3: Um, boy, you know, it would be an interesting thing to try and figure out. Um, certainly, you know, in the in the fifties, there was no reason to pay a doctor very much because they couldn't do very much. You know, they had aspirin and penicillin, and they could get your appendix out reliably most of the time. So, you know, and as as medicine became more accomplished, you know, we can, you know, we can read we can rejigger your heart so that, you know, you, you don't have chest pain and you don't die of an MI. You know, we can all of a sudden you know doctors are doing stuff that, that um, made a much bigger difference in people's lives. But I think what really happened was somebody went to business school and said, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait a minute. You guys could be making a lot of money if you just got yourself organized. Mm. And now you know, I read venture capital groups are buying up hospitals and in, in cities. Um, you know, and and you know, as as you alluded to, as soon as a corporation's motive is just to make more money, um, it's not going to go well for the consumer. And when the profit motive is how medicine is structured, it's been a catastrophe. Yeah. Um. um I I always uh, my career was spent in academics, so you know, I just got a salary from the university and. Know, operated on anybody i i thought you know would profit from an operation there's no no motive to do more so th- that kind of medical model where you put your physicians on a on a salary and you get the profit motive out of the whole game i think uh would make a big difference but it's not going to be easy to to get there in the united states you know it's it's a it's it's a problem.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's an entrenched problem, uh, you know, and then you add the, the, the food and the, the the inactivity. And it's just like the entire approach to life in the U S is sort of um, anti-health. It's, it's, it must be devastating from your perspective.
3: And we, and we've systemically miseducated consumers. So, you know, Oh, you have pain. You must need a pill. And if, if that's the approach, you're going to have disappointed consumers, but you're going to sell a lot of pills. Right. Um, you know, when the real answer is, you know, you need to change the way you're living. Um, that's a heavier lift for most people. And uh, most people just don't want to hear it because, um, you know, a a pill would be easier.
2: And isn't that that's, again, and we keep hitting on these things that, that sort of reflect in many different directions, right? Like, spirituality you know people looking for for contentment and peace and and you know love and the answer is almost always you need to change the way you're living (laughs) but people don't want to hear that so no no just give money to this guru or do these exercises or you know get this surgery or take this pill it's it's the yeah, for, for
3: a long time my my career was quite blinkered you know because i was a trauma surgeon so people come in with a gunshot wound and it's simple you know we're going to go to the or and we're going to stop the bleeding and soap the holes and get you to the icu it's it's a very simple algorithm and it's it's not about changing the life you live until you pull back the focus and say how's oh, so the come you got shot anyway yeah <laughs> you know? and and the and, uh, and usually there's People don't usually get shot for praying too loud in church. Bad joke. Sometimes you get shot in church these days. Mm, um,
2: that's true.
3: But um, but you know, it, it's it's a it's a choice that we've made as individuals and as a society to make gunshot wounds a, a part of our lives. How crazy is that? Yeah. And yeah. and now and now we've decided. Oh, you know, really, it's a public health problem. And once you reconfigure the problem in that way, you might be able to make some progress. I've I spent a lot of time on the, uh, the problem of uh, gun violence. That's one of my research interests. And um, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. It's, uh, it's going to be a hard problem to solve. But as as you, I'm sure, have heard, gunshot wounds are the leading cause of death in children in the United States.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I don't know, man. I I lived in Spain for over twenty years, and so I feel like a foreigner in the U.S. in many ways. <clears throat> and I, I see these these issues that we're talking about, and I, I don't want to be a, a downer. I know, you know, hope is important, but I, I, it just feels like they're so systemic. You know, whether we're talking about industrial agriculture or we're talking about you know, miseducating people on how to move and how to inhabit their bodies or, you know, it's just like, uh, it's so systemic. It's so baked into the cake at this point. I don't know. Where do you even start? Yeah. (laughs) Where do you even start? It feels like, you know, we need some sort of a major revolution and then start over. You know, it's, I just don't see how to, it's like sometimes a manuscript is so bad that no amount of editing is ever going to fix it. You know, (laughs) (laughs)
3: written <laughs> <laughs> a few of those myself
2: i have <laughs> <laughs> so have i so have i um okay so let let me uh uh push back a little bit on something you said in your in your tedx talk you, you're holding the spine and you say this is a masterpiece of human evolution and i know much less about this than you do obviously but i look at the spine as most of the things in evolution as as a patching over patches over patches over patches as opposed to a masterpiece right um Mm -hmm. so to me it looks more like okay this was not meant to be vertical this was meant to be horizontal right so the 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 origins of the spine were in lemurs i would i would think well well the
3: spine has to do both of course because you have to begin by crawling so the spine has to support crawling Mm-hmm. And it has to support toddling and it has to support upright posture. I mean it has to do all of those things and it's it's interesting that the spine can um, kind of evolve in the course of you know um, months to become a different uh structural element um, so I'd say it's part of the brilliance of the spine that it can kind of uh, well, you know, the expression, the ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. Um, you know, you kind of go through being a fish in the, and so the spine goes through, you know, some crawling animal to some standing animal in the course of the, of the early uh, months and years of a child's life. Um, and, and this is absolutely required because the business of, I mean, it takes a kid, a year to learn how to walk why does that take so long you know is the child lazy or stupid what's the deal and the deal is walking is very hard it's Mm -hmm. very there's a lot of machinery to keep upright and moving without falling down and in order to get all that all that to work you have to program the whole nervous system and you do that by letting the child explore its environment and you know, kids go through a, a a series of maneuvers that they learn over weeks and months and the first year of life that culminate in upright walking posture. They teach themselves to walk by merely interacting with the world. It's brilliant, mm. um, and the spine goes right along with the whole thing, uh, changing its its contours and configuration until finally it supports upright posture. So. I would say that, you know, it's even more brilliant than it seems. It's, Mm. and, you know, when you, when you get down to the facet joints in the spine, you know, they're oriented in anterior posterior direction. So the lumbar spine flexes AP, but not laterally. And then you get to the thorax and you get rotation because the facet joints have just rotated about 45 degrees. You don't see this until you take a spine with your hands and start twisting an articulated uh, spine and start twisting and playing with it. It really is brilliant. It is incredible. What do you think about yoga? So, um, you know, yoga is a, um, you know, I've done you know a few years of yoga in the past, and you know, I, it's it's you know it's certainly good exercise, and you you get more limber. But the history of yoga is, uh, you know, not at all what 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 we what we call yoga in the United States we've kind of turned we have competition yoga in the United States which no you no, no yogi in India would recognize that as a concept you know it's it's a <laughs> yoga yoga comes from um uh, the sanskrit um word for yoke as in like yoking oxen together so it's 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 connecting you to the sublime infinite uh, universe. It's, it's about spiritual development. It's not about, uh, you know, touching your toes, um, at least in its original configuration. Um, so, um, you know, I, I've gotten a lot of good out of yoga because it's made me more flexible and stronger, but, um, I kind of have a feeling it's drifted a long way from where it started as everything that comes to America does. Everything gets reinvented in a way that, you know, the people who invented it would not would not recognize pizza. I'm sure, you know, it seems seems odd <laughs> to the Italians.
2: We put cheese in the crust. <laughs> <laughs> in America. Yeah. Yeah. I I I was thinking about yoga when you were talking about the, the different ways that the spine articulates and doesn't articulate. I was thinking about, you know, how many yoga teachers are just pushing for greater mobility and flexibility without really understanding the skeletal constraints of, of the body, you know? Right.
3: And, and you see these, um, you know, people who have extreme flexibility and you think, boy, that's cool. But years down the road, they also have arthritis. So just, uh, it's not necessarily the case that these, um, extreme practices are healthful. Um, you know uh we, we say that um, exercise is like the best drug ever I mean it basically makes everything better and so as a as a doctor you'd like to be able to write a prescription for exercise because you know it's hard to get people to to actually do exercise um, but if you think of exercise as a as a wonder wonder drug is there such a thing as an overdose mm-hmm yeah. It, it is the it is the case that in medicine we say all drugs are poisons. It's just a matter of the dosage, you know. You know it's it's and and you know we we now know that extreme uh, cardiovascular athletes, the you know the super long distance cross country skiers and stuff like that, wind up having heart difficulties later in life. So you know you can you can push the machinery out of its um, out of its design envelope. Um, and, you know, it can cause problems with joints, it can cause problems with cardiovascular health. Um, so, yeah, Hippocrates, I think, got it right when he said, you know, moderation in all things, mm-hmm. uh, you know.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I, I um, was talking about this with Joe Rogan last time when I was on his show, he was uh, sort of joking about the fact that, like, I'm one of his only friends who doesn't like work out a lot and have big muscles <laughs> and all that. And I and I said to him like, you know, first of all, there are a million places I'd rather be than a gym. Like, it stinks. It's full of like dudes I don't really want to hang out with. It's just not my and scene. It's, and it's boring. It's boring as fuck. I mean, do you know the origin of the um uh, uh what's it called the 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 belt that you run on? You know the uh, the treadmill. The treadmill. Do you know the origin of the treadmill? Well, you know, my, I I did a
3: little research uh, dive on it, and my understanding is that the treadmill actually got its start, you know, 500 BC maybe, when people were walking on a water wheel to to irrigate crops. In, oh, uh, geez, I didn't in, know that. In Egypt. I, well, there's kind of a form thrust of a of a treadmill. It converts human lower extremity work into into useful uh work Mm. by turning a shaft so that was that was kind of the 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 beginnings of the treadmill and you know it, it had different incarnations over time to produce energy and then we had horses so trying to get people to crank out calories and watts just wasn't as useful but it came back into service in the 1800s when it was used in prisons as that's, a punishment
2: right that's because, what i was um, thinking of
3: because it was it was a soul crushing punishment because <laughs> there was no end you know you just kept <laughs> trudging along. You're not accomplishing and- anything you're it was just... it was it it was worse it was worse than solitary confinement you know <laughs> and now you yeah. know people you know want one for their basement although I expect most <laughs> of them are just, just' a place where they hang their workout gear and, yeah. and gathers dust I yeah I, I it, it just... I, and you 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 perhaps know this story but um it was Lieberman, I think, um, a guy at Harvard took a, a treadmill out into the bush and uh, to, to, to try and measure the cardiovascular fitness of the Hadza, the hunter-gatherers out in you know Tanzania. And so they, they, they get this thing on a Land Rover, and they get it all the way out into the bush, and they hook it up with batteries and stuff to get it to work, and the Hadza will not get on it. They think we don't see the point. Why would anybody do that?
4: <laughs> <Yeah>.
3: <laughs> the poor research is really crestfallen a lot of work to get a to get a treadmill working out in the bush and then to have your subjects just refuse yeah i mean but but that was a teachable moment you know the Hadza have much to teach us and refusing to get on a treadmill is one of those teachable moments for sure
2: yeah i, I was lucky enough to hang out with the Hadza last year i was in tanzania for a while and um <clears throat> i i have a friend who you may have actually heard of. uh, He is um, a a researcher in uh, the microbiome
4: Mm -hmm.
2: and he spent a lot of time with the Hadza studying their diet and their microbiome uh, digestive. And um, he just sort of not, not with any research intention, just for his own personal interest, he took some Hadza uh, fecal material and mixed it up and, and, shot it up his ass to see if he could cultivate a hunter gatherer microbiome in his own gut Mm -hmm. and i guess he told someone the story and the story spread and next thing you know it's like in the new york times and it became this this big thing (laughs) (laughs) it kind of messed up his career for a while Um, but anyway he he hooked us up and we we spent some time with them and there there was a lot of fun
3: well, the, the whole business of self-experimentation has a long history. There's a, there's a great book entitled who goes first, where, you know, when you're going to do some, some crazy ass thing, you know, typically at least historically doctors would involve their wives. Mm.
2: <laughs> and children sometimes. <laughs>
3: and, and, and children, you know, it, Skinner it's, boxes. It's it's, it's, it's really, it's really quite something, thing, but um uh, A guy who was interested in um, the infectious etiology of um, duodenal ulcers. Yeah, Um, um, yeah, you know that story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so, so, drank it and developed duodenal ulcers, proving his point. But he. Just about couldn't eradicate the stuff. I mean, you have to be careful with the self uh, experimentation because you can pick up interesting parasites that you probably wish you didn't have. Um, so it's, it's heroic to be, to be to try trying yeah. to copy somebody's
2: biome. Well, and 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 medical research is so difficult to budge, or, or I should say, medical insights or conclusions or whatever. You have to do something as dramatic as drink. The bacteria at a medical conference in front of five hundred people, and say, <laughs> "Check in with me in three months, and we'll find out if I'm right or wrong." I, I don't know if you know about this, but I think one of the most heroic examples of what you're talking about, I'm aware of, is in the late, um, well, in the '50s up until the early '60s, LSD was marketed to physicians, particularly psychiatrists, as a psychotomimetic. In other words, it was something that doctors would take in order to experience psychosis so that they could better understand their patients. That's an interesting view. Yeah, I mean, it turns out LSD probably doesn't mimic the, the experience of psychosis all that well, so that's sort of discredited from a medical perspective, but... The idea that as a as a psychiatrist intending and to with a compassion for your patients who have lost touch with reality, that you can take this substance and for six or seven hours lose touch with consensus reality, and that's going to make you a better doctor, that's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing, but it's it's a it's also commonplace.
3: You know, there's nothing like a doctor getting cancer to make him much more sympathetic with patients who have cancer. You know, suddenly you understand what it's like to, you know, be waiting with bated breath for the next biopsy in a way that, you know, you thought you understood, but until you experience it, you don't. (laughs) I haven't had that particular experience, but I've, you know, I've been a doctor taking care of back pain and wondering why these people are, you know, moaning and carrying on when there's nothing wrong with their x-ray. And, I got back pain, and I now understand why these people are carrying on. It really hurts.
2: You know? Yeah. It makes isn't, you a lot more sympathetic. Isn't pain an interesting phenomenon, though? Because getting back to what you said earlier, how the sensations come in and then we interpret them. So anxiety and excitement are exactly the same from a neurobiological perspective, right?
4: Mm-hmm. Pain, it's all about
2: context. Yeah. Like if we, I, I wrote a chapter in a, medical textbook years ago about pain and i opened by by describing a dream in which you step on a piece of jagged glass and it cuts into your foot you feel pain when that happens in your dream your body experiences pain your heart rate goes up there are hormonal releases you know the the body is going through the experience of of pain and yet nothing actually happened to you Conversely, people can burn themselves under hypnosis and not feel any pain at all so it's or it's people can be, can be
3: gunshot in battle and carry on and only only later notice you know blood running down their leg or whatever you know it's a it's a it's a it's a wiring system that has lots of checks and balances and overrides built into it um, so and and when you think about it um the human organism is arguably the most or one of the most complex objects in the universe. And yet it doesn't have an owner's manual. You just start driving. And, um, you know, so how is that even possible? And the the answer is pain, you know, pain lets you know when you're doing something wrong. And crucially, um, if you say break a rib, um, pain lets you know when it's healed and you're ready to go again. So it's a very exquisitely tuned onboard diagnostic system that lets you control a very complicated machine without even being able to read or write, right? You know, you, every every preliterate society does just as well. And in fact, you know, bonobos and chimps and roundworms, you know, they all have hmm. pain to modulate their behavior to keep them safe. So it's, it's a, it's a, and, and just to prove the point, some people are born with some neurocircuitry that's missing and aren't able to feel pain and their lives are terrible because they can't tell when they're stubbing their toe or burning their hand. And um, it's a,
2: it's a, it's a nightmare. And getting back to, getting back to pain, pain is your, pain is your friend, right? As is pleasure. Right. Is this pleasure, <laughs> yes. And yet, getting back to griping about modern society, one of the things that we teach kids is to ignore the voice of the body, to be ashamed of the pleasure, to ignore the pain, no pain, no gain, fight through it, walk it off, you know, go to the gym and do all this boring nonsense so you can have <laughs> big muscles to impress other guys, because most women don't give a shit about your muscles, dudes. Sorry to break <laughs> it to you. Uh, you know, like this it seems it's like it's like putting the kid in the dark room and saying, cry it out. We just do that to ourselves over and over again until we get to the point where we can't hear the voice of our body. You know, yeah, no, in terms and- of diet and exercise and movement. Like what what is the best exercise from your medical perspective? If you were going to prescribe exercise, what would you suggest people do? Oh, I, I, I think it's different for
3: different people and certainly different stages in their lives. Um, two things I'd say is that um, um, the best exercise is one that you'll do. Mm. Um, it has to be something that you find engaging or fun or uplifting or amusing or, or it, it, it has to be something that you, that you want to do or else it's not likely to happen. Um, as a, as a baseline though, Hippocrates, uh, said that walking is man's best medicine. So, yeah. you know, we, we know that, um, the human body is really designed to walk, uh, you know, miles a day as hunter gatherers, we can run when necessary, but walking is our preferred most efficient gait. Um, and so, um, uh, we're, we're, our, our bio, um, uh, um, milieu interior is is programmed to expect that level of, of biochemical effort of walking, so it's it's really it's really well tuned to our to our our health and longevity. Um, so um, you know, walking I think is the, the thing I pick first. But you know, if you like doing you know martial arts or swimming or you know gymnastics or whatever, you know, terrific. Um, but you know something that you find engaging is really the, the key to lifelong pursuit, and and that will change. You know, I started out you know doing competition judo in college, and I moved on to aikido, which is like a kind of a flowing martial art. And then as getting thrown around gets harder, as you hit get into your seventies, you know, tai chi is looking better and better. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, I w- I wanted to ask you about Aikido. Uh, I saw on your website that you you mentioned Aikido as one of the sources of information in designing the chairs and, and your approach to things. I I also studied Aikido for a few really? years. Really? Yeah, what? yeah. And and you know I well here's here's my Aikido story. I I was in graduate school and um, I went to a class. that was about drug abuse and alcohol addiction and addictions in general. And I was an adult student. I was in my probably late thirties at the time. And I had done a lot of research about psychedelics and um, ethnobotany and the way different cultures interact with different psychotropic substances. And, you know, so I was in a position where I, probably knew more about this than the teacher you know so i was thinking oh boy this is going to be difficult because this teacher is going to be spouting a bunch of mainstream nonsense about how all drugs are bad and you know blah 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 and i'm going to be faced with either be true to myself by disputing some of this or just shut up and let it happen Anyway, first day of class, I go in and this guy is awesome and he's way ahead of me and he knows everything I know and then some, and it was just such a wonderful experience. And at one point he said, you know, as therapists, a lot of people who come to you are coming against their will. They're coming because the wife said, if you don't see someone, we're getting divorced Uh or the judge says, if you don't go into therapy, you're going to prison or whatever. And so they're coming to you with all this aggressive, resistant energy, and you can't let that affect you. You need to maintain your center and find a way to use this energy to help them. And I raised my hand, and I had studied Kung Fu and and Karate when I was younger. And I said to him, that sounds like Aikido, right? And he said, oh, yeah, come to me after class and let's talk about this. So I went after class and he said, look, I've studied Aikido for 20 years and it's been more helpful for me as a psychotherapist than any graduate school, any book, any Jung, Freud, any of that stuff. And he said, if you want to do this, I would really encourage you to to study Aikido. And uh, here's the name of my teacher in San Francisco. And I said, well, I don't have any money. I'm going to debt just to do this grad school. And he's like, well, just go call. The first class is always free and meet the guy and see what happens. So I went to the class and his name was Richard moon, this teacher. And, uh, the class was awesome. It was fantastic. And after class, he said, what do you think you can going to come back? And I said, look, I'd love to, but I don't have any money. I'm in grad school. I'm working at a nonprofit. It's, you know, I just can't afford whatever. And he said, "Look, classes are ten bucks a a class. Come to class as much as you want. Keep track of it. When you have money someday, send it to me. And if you can't find (laughs) me, give it to somebody who needs it." I thought, "That's Aikido, right? That's he's living this perspective, and and so that won me over. I and then I continued studying with him for a while, and then in Barcelona for years after."
3: no and 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 it's um you know aikido is not just about um maintaining your equilibrium in a psychological sense but also in a physical sense you know um I, I i i sometimes i i'm only shodan i'm only first degree black belt but i sometimes teach at our dojo when when nobody else is available and i say you know aikido is just about your posture gets better and better and your opponent's posture gets worse and worse until he falls down you know, it's just it's just a matter of, you know, staying, um, being in a balanced position so you can move back, you can move in any direction without effort or preparation. This is what Aikido is. And it's also the way you want to stand and the way you want to sit is to be, you know, perfectly balanced so you can move in any direction. And, and you know, our Aikido dojo really embraced the whole idea of active sitting because it's just so much about you know, being balanced um, in every direction.
2: Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 I, I really love Aikido. I think it's not the martial art I would choose if I were in a fight, but it's the martial art that I would choose to avoid getting into a fight. Absolutely, absolutely you know um and so so here 's a story um
3: i i i couldn 't never find time to do aikido myself because I was like a busy surgeon saving lives, but when my kid got to be six years old, I was trying to teach him a judo roll, and he kept doing somersaults, and I thought surely there's somebody in Burlington, Vermont who can teach him how to how to roll, so we go to a, an aikido class and um and it's the kids are just ricocheting off the walls, terrific, and you know our, my, my kid immediately gets it, and, and, and I get signed up for the kids' class just because they need you know the kids like throw big people around, so it's fun it's for everybody. <laughs> <clears throat> my, my kid gets to the first day of middle school, and he's like under a tree reading a book with some of his friends at lunchtime. and uh, some big kids come by and says, "This is our tree, you have to leave." And my son and his two friends say, well, no, we're just reading a book. And then they grab one of my son's friends and throw him down against a basketball hoop. And he's lying down crying. And then they grab the next you know, son's other friend and throw him against the tree. And he falls down crying. And my son is just standing there looking at him. And they stop and they leave. Yeah. Um, I, I I doubt I don't know what would have happened but it doesn't matter it's just how you stand and how you look mm-hmm. um and the, then they got the teacher involved and the, the badly behaving children were, were forbidden to have recess for the rest of the year but but you uh, know avoiding conflict is really so much more useful <laughs> 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 than yeah. making a big deal out of it yeah and and Being ready for the next step is really all it takes. Yeah. You don't really
2: need the next step. You know, earlier when you were talking about how babies learn to walk uh, and what a complicated process that is, the balance and the different brain systems and, you know, so many things are happening. I was thinking of a book called The Song Lines. You know that book by Bruce Chatwin? I don't think I do. Very interesting, very interesting anthropological book. Um, So many different reasons. It's interesting. Um, You know, the song lines are the sort of walking prayer of Aboriginal Mm -hmm. Australian cultures. Um, The book's very much about walking. And uh, I was thinking how I wonder if babies that gestate in a woman who is herself walking feel that rhythm and that helps them in the process of learning to walk themselves. Mm-hmm. Whereas babies who are, you know, in utero in, in women who are not walking, who are just sort of hanging around in, in Western culture, if that has an effect on the development of the baby's brain or recognition of rhythm or, or what have you.
3: Uh, I'm sure it's true because, you know, we know that babies, you know, recognize their mother's voice immediately they exit the womb into the world because they've been listening to it through the abdominal wall. So, you know, the, 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 the tiny brain inside the uterus is it's, it's not like they, uh, on pause, it's recording constantly. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sure that the business of, you know, being inside of a living, breathing, walking individual um, makes a difference. Uh, I'm sure that that's true. Um and and we, and we know that we know that learning to walk is complicated, because roboticists, um, when they want to teach a robot to walk, have found that it's much better to let the robot explore the world and develop its own way of walking than it is to try and program a robot to walk. That's there's a there's a guy here um, at, um, at the University of Vermont, Josh Bongard, in the Department of Engineering, but I think he's got joint appointments in the Department of Mathematics. He's, he's brilliant. And he's invented robotic starfish that um, you know, are, are programmed just to flop around, but they keep track of if they're making progress toward where they're supposed to go. And if some flopping motion gets them closer, they do more of that. And if some flopping motion doesn't, they do less of that. And before you know it, the starfish are like moving through, uh, uh, through the world with a gait that you could never have imagined yourself. You know, it's just, and what is absolutely cool about it is Vanguard then like rips off one of the legs. So the starfish, you know, is like one leg down and it learns how to limp and get around anyway. Just as a human who's learned to walk, if something happens, strains an ankle, suddenly switches their gait to some gait that lets them continue to get around by having constant feedback from the world. So, So, you know, by having this deeply ingrained self-taught kind of motivation mo- through the world um, allows people to on the fly switch it up when needed it's it's a very robust system of motion rather than having a right leg forward left leg forward kind of robotic shuffle which wouldn't serve you well if, when the hyenas come for you you know you
2: need <laughs> when that that sounds like the title of a book you know when the <laughs> hyenas come for you <laughs> you better be ready. <laughs> oh man, hey Turner, thank you so much. Uh I, Dr. Turner O'sler, I should I should uh, not be so casual. Um, well,
3: I'm I I, I I I'm still I'm still board certified, but I haven't done an honest day's work in the operating room for for a decade, so I'm, I'm not. <laughs> no, nah, you
2: once I have I have a lot of respect for medical doctors. I, as I said, I lived for 20 years with Casilda, as a psychiatrist, and she, um, before she did her residency in psychiatry, she worked in Mozambique in during a war, and she. Amputated limbs and delivered babies and you know transfused her own blood into somebody who was dying and like she she's heroic. And so, you know, when people call me doctor with my little PhD, I just feel so (laughs) ridiculous. (laughs) Well, yeah, well,
3: you know, the word doctor doesn't have anything to do with sutures or aspirin or anything, right? I mean it it means teacher. Mm. Um and you know, so so you know that that's legit. That's legit.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's. I mean, despite all the all the everything working against medical doctors, the systems and the profit motives and the this and the that, I still think there's something uh, deeply generous and decent about anyone who chooses to do that with their life. No,
3: I I just love working with medical students. You know, because they 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 show up for the right reason. You know, it's it's a it's a very it's a it's it's I just love working with them. Yeah.
2: Well, listen, thank you for your work. And I hope that some people listening to this will uh, check out your chairs. all oh, right <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, these sorts of things I, you know, I'm not, I'm not telling people to go buy this or buy that. But I think it's helpful to, to meet the person behind it. And get a sense of who you are and what you're about. And what motivates you to do what you do. And uh, I think that's the best possible advertisement. So um, yeah. I hope that people who can afford it. I had a friend, I was telling him about this and he was like, well, I don't know. I looked at the website and they described the chairs as affordable, but they're like 400 bucks. And I was like, dude, how many, how many visits to a chiropractor or a surgeon will 400 bucks cover, you know? It's no. Like- and,
3: and, and, and I, and I rankle with that too. So, um, um now we have one that we're selling for 300 bucks you know we're, we're doing everything we can to kind of you know find some way to bring active sitting to everybody
2: yeah um, well and, and as we... office chairs go 400 bucks isn't expensive i've i've looked at them and you know you i haven't or i had an aaron chair that costs like 900 bucks or something you know i You know,
3: they, they, those guys cranking out air
2: on chairs are not in it for, for you. (laughs) (laughs) Not in it for the air ons. Yeah. All right. Well, I will link to your TEDx talk and to your website and um, I hope people will, will come in. Invisit well, it, it's been
3: and... swell. I, I, I just love these kind of free-ranging conversations. And I love your book. Um, you know, uh, um, C- Civilized to Death is really, a, it's a terrific read. You know, I, you. it's a, it's not easy to cover that much ground with authority.
2: All right, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Turner Osler. Um, MD, very, very cool guy. Very smart. Heart's in the right place, for sure. Uh, And I like the chair. I'm sitting on it now. I've been sitting on it the whole time I've been editing this. Um, The first week or two, you know, and they say this in their their material, 20 minutes and then, you know, give it a break because it takes a while for your body to get used to it. But I'm used to it now. And it's awesome. Really like it. I don't have back pain. Luckily, I haven't had that issue in my life very often, um, so I can't talk to that particular aspect of it. But it feels good. Uh, I'm going to let you go, but I do wanted. I just wanted to drop in real quickly and say remind you that we're doing a workshop in Montana in August twentieth to the twenty fifth, I think, with the folks at uh, Budokan at their beautiful property outside of Whitefish. So if you're free and you want to meet some other tangentialistas and some um, some people who are into movement and yoga and martial arts and rolling around in a dojo, it's going to be a five-day event. We're going to be talking about relationships, sexuality, movement, embodiment, masculinity, femininity, and whatever the fuck else comes up. Uh, so it's going to be a very balanced kind of mind-body um, pleasure-based uh, five-day retreat. And uh, you can find out more about that if you look at the show notes to this episode where I will put a link. I mean, I could read it to you, but it's kind of uh, Budokon, budokon.com. Uh, and then you'll see an events tab and just go to the Sex at Dawn Retreat uh, and you'll see it there. Or if it's easier, just go to the uh, episode description on Substack and you will see a link to it there. Hope to see you in Montana in August. Awesome. I'm going to play you out with a cover of the Sultans of Swing by Dire Straits. And uh, this I found on, on YouTube. It's by um, the, the players are Mary Spender and Josh Turner. I came across Mary Spender because she was on Rick Beato's uh, show on YouTube. She's a guitarist, uh, excellent guitarist. And uh, I I get the sense she and Josh are friends, and they got together and recorded this cover version of one of the great guitar songs of all time. And uh, yeah, Sultans of Swing. Hope you enjoy it. See you next time.
0: get a shiver in the dark it's raining in the park but meantime south of the river you stop and you hold everything a band is blowing dixie double four time you feel all right when you hear that
5: Step inside, but you don't see too many faces
1: coming in out of the
5: rain to hear the jazz roll down. A competition in other places, all but the horns that blowing that sound way on down south.
0: Doesn't wanna make it cry or sing. Lieutenant O'Guitar old guitar is all he can afford. When he gets up under the lights to play his thing,
5: and Harry doesn't mind if he doesn't make the scene. He's got a daytime job. He's doing all right. He can play the honky tonk like anything. He's saving it up for Friday night with the Sultans, with the Sultans of Swing.
0: Yeah, the sultans they play creole
5: We are the sultans of swing